Hello and welcome to How I Write, a podcast from the California State University San Bernardino Writing Intensive Program. Today I talk with Katie Porter, poet and director of the Inlandia Institute in Riverside. She reads from her newest collections of poetry, including The Body at a Loss and a chapbook written with Johnny Bender about living through the COVID-19 pandemic. That's called Slow Unraveling of Living Ghosts. Katie Porter, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Tom, for having me. Your book, uh, The Body at a Loss, right, uh, that came out in 2019, which is a, a, a series of poems uh, responding to your mother's cancer diagnosis and then your own medical diagnosis following that. Uh, what, what was your process like uh, writing that book? Well, so I wrote a number of those poems even before or maybe concurrently with my mom's um, illness. Um, but I didn't have it in my head at that time that it was going to be a book. Then when, um, after she was in recovery and I, um, I ended up having sort of a scary diagnosis. It wasn't scary, but it was um, unexpected. Um, I had to have a total thyroidectomy because I have Hashimoto's thyroiditis. So my immune system was attacking my thyroid and it was getting enlarged and it was, um, it was interfering with my ability to swallow. So after the thyroidectomy, um, you know, I've had a lot of recovery time and during that time, um, I just, I wasn't able to be real active. And so I spent most of that time just sitting on the couch, either reading or writing. And in some cases, you know, I was taking pain medication, Norco, and it, it just was, um, an interesting experience trying to get all of that down in the moment to capture it. Um, before I lost that immediacy. Um, so that was, it was interesting. And I tend to write on my um, computer. I don't do much by longhand. There are so many moments in, in this book, so many powerful uh, images, I feel like, in, in, the, in the book. I, I get the sense of a sort of duality emerging of, of kind of tragedy and, and beauty and strength and uh, fragility and kind of a living and a dying all at once um, and 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 I, I I wonder if there's if you feel there's something particular to poetry right particular to that uh, genre and, and, and that medium that allows you to kind of access to it to uh, a sort of way of knowing maybe that isn't as accessible or, or maybe as differently accessible in different genres, different medium, mm-hmm. media? I think with poetry, there's an economy of language and where you can have one word that will be symbolic of other things and that you can get a lot of um, movement from very few words. I think with poetry, it's... Um, about making someone feel. I mean, if you can read a poem, if you don't feel anything from reading it, I I think that's 
kind of a failure of the poetry. Good poetry should make you feel. And with writing, um, I had a lot of time to think about my situation and some, you know, scary situations while I was recovering. The morning after uh, the surgery, I was, you know, in bed and I had what I think is a post-anesthesia migraine. You know, I already tend to have migraines, but it woke me from sleep. And probably the last thing you want to do when you've had um, surgery on your neck is to be vomiting uncontrollably. So um, I ended up getting rushed to the ER and the whole ambulance ride. My kids were really freaked out. But later, that um, provided, that emotional experience provided some content for the poem. And it helped me process what I was going through. I mean, have you always sort of thought of yourself as a poet? Have you always gone to writing and to poetry as a way to help process and help make something of of those experiences and emotions? Yes. Um, I I don't come from a family of writers. I do, um, you know, I come from a blue-collar background. And, but I did get a lot of positive reinforcement from family and educators at a young age. And it was something that I turned to to um, help me process feelings. I think it's the cliche, but uh, love poems when, when you're a teenager, teens write about love and death and <laughs> because you know their whole worlds, um, their worlds are, are much smaller, the peers. And I think I started writing then seriously but I, I kept it up, um, and it's always been part of my identity. It's not a vocation. It's who I am, and it's just how I process the world. Um, I mean, speaking of, of uh, children and teenagers, uh, you have uh, a poem uh, in, in the body at a loss uh, about your son, right? And today's your son's 21st birthday? It is, yes. Um, so I have two sons. One of them turned 18 last week, and the other one turns 21 today. And it's a new space for me to be in as a mother to have um, two adult children. <laughs> so we're Today's... all done with the soccer games or what have you. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But I, if, would you like me to read this? Yes, please. Sure. Okay. So um, this, for context, this poem was written when my now 21-year-old was a freshman in high school. And this was um, at the beginning of my journey. Reading Miller's essay on tragedy and the common man with my teenage son the night before receiving the radiologist's report. My teenage son struggles to interpret Miller's prose, which, to me, says nothing more than we're all in this together, that tragedy is not a state reserved for nobility, but instead can afflict us all. So when my son asks me to help with this essay, I happily oblige because 
How much longer do I have with him, really? And when Miller cites the psychology of Oedipus and Orestes, I ask and am informed that my son neither wants to marry me or nor to kill me. Instead, he just wants to finish the damn essay. So I struggle to translate Miller's turns of phrase into language my son can understand. Mocking Jays and the strategy of applying one's intellect to save one's skin, the drama of loss. When the structure of the essay requires him to choose sides, either with or against Miller, he opts to remain unconvinced. Although I suspect that if I had done a better job, he would be more willing to risk being wrong. In the morning, I will pick up the radiologist's report which will tell me at which particular crossroads I stand. But what good does it do us to fixate on endings when everything depends upon the liminal, the little deaths that happen each day while we wait to live? That's, that's another one, of, just a, a really powerful line at the end there, right? The, the liminal, the little deaths that happen each day while we wait to live. You know, how was how it like for you looking at that poem now, looking backwards on it, right, from, from where you are today? Well, from my perspective, it feels like yesterday. But it's, mm. you know, a number of years have passed. And all of the pain and anguish of dealing with teenagers and trying to wrangle them, you know, to get them to do their homework... <laughs> And all of those things that feel so important in the moment um, now feel less important. Um, I mean, it was important at the time, but, you know, the more important thing is that they are becoming who they are and who they want to be. So, but I am, I'm grateful that I've written poems like this. All of my books are peppered with moments that um, would otherwise be lost to time. I mean, who remembers helping their child write an essay? It was pretty painful <laughs> to try and get him to write it. Um, and he's a very good writer, but it's just, I'm glad I wrote it. And it helps to connect my current present self with that past self. Yeah. you In writing these poems, you've created kind of... Uh, a set of memories, right? There's there's a way in which you read these poems. I feel like there's a way in which anybody can read the poems, right? And and it can stir memory, right? It can it can create uh, that sort of shared experience. But then there's also the the way that for you these represent a very particular uh, collection of memories, right? Almost like a, a I don't know, almost like a a family photo album, right? But with with words. Yeah, when I read that poem, I'm back at the dining table, sitting next to him, and you know we're both sitting there and struggling to write this essay. That's it. It transports me. It's sort of like a memory in amber that will always be preserved in that particular moment. So now we're in another uh, moment of uh, time where we also have sort of unexpected. Uh, periods of waiting and anticipating and, and not knowing. Uh, 
and and you have another collection, right? A, a chapbook that you've uh, co-authored with uh, Johnny Bender. Yeah. So um, Johnny Bender is the Inlandia Institute board president. I'm Inlandia Institute executive director, and we both happen to be poets, and we've actually been, you know, acquainted before he ever joined the board um, through poetry. And at the very beginning of the pandemic, when we really didn't know what was going to happen, we figured if, if we just hunker down for long enough that everything will go back to normal in a few weeks. And here it is eight months later. <laughs> but in those early days, um, I did what I usually do, which is I turned to poetry. Um, I wrote one poem that felt like it was speaking to the moment. And I, I mentioned it to, to Johnny um, in a, another phone call. And he said, send it to me. So I sent it to him. And he read it and was inspired to write something in response. And he sent that back to me. And we just kept going back and forth like that for a while until we realized, you know, we have enough here that could make a book. It's not a full-length book. If we had kept going, um, it probably would be 200 pages by now. But we just, after a while, realized I remember that, that feeling. You know, this, is, this is a complete entity, and let's publish it. And we decided to do it as part of our spring um, fundraising drive for Inlandia. So some donors who received, who, who gave more than $100 each received a copy of the book. And it was just, it was fun. Um, now we're planning to do a, a reading from the book to a joint reading now that it's formally out. I'd love to read you the opening poem from that if you're Yes, interested. please, yes. Sure. Okay. So this is that first poem that I sent to Johnny and that got us kind of rolling on this. And it's called Ticking. No light when I wake until the clamor of the bulb's bright noise. The hour falls open. Its intricate minutes expose their brass clockwork. I clip the wire with my teeth, see the seconds roll to the floor from the clipped wire thread bead by bead, pool about my feet. I scoop them up and lick them from my palm. No, the contagion is on them. Do not use your tongue. The distance between, it is a tunnel of flannel. Oh, bed, you are my enemy. I think that's that's great, and and there there there's sort of a, a a theme throughout the book. I feel like that that's kind of well represented in that poem of of a sort of danger associated with otherwise completely innocent things. There's you know uh, people playing basketball in the park, um, sitting, uh, sitting at a park bench, you know, all these things that you wouldn't think twice about before. Now, the ice cream man. The ice cream man. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, and I just feel like that 
captures the kind of I don't know legitimate paranoia of of the of the pandemic. Yeah, I mean it's it was such a mind warp to try and stop yourself from doing all these things that had become habitual. Not you can't just go to the market on the spur of the moment anymore. It's it requires planning. Mm-hmm. Um you have to reevaluate how much you need a thing before you venture out into the wild for it and you know what the possible consequences might be yeah yeah uh can you talk a little bit more about uh the collaboration on the book is Mm -hmm. is this is this your first collaboration uh in general or with uh with johnny bender um we've it's my first collaboration with johnny um One other thing that I did during the pandemic, which also writing helps kind of keep me wired together when I'm feeling stressed out, but I did post a collaborative writing prompt every day for the first 75 days of the pandemic on Inlandia's Facebook page. So people would contribute a line and then I would weave them all together into a poem. So that was probably the most collaboration I've done so far Um, with the book it was more of a call and response style of collaboration we didn't collaborate on the individual poems but each new poem kind of riffed on the one previous so you know the poems in the book are basically in the order that we wrote them that's really great so it's sort of captures kind of a a conversation through poetry where you're sort of there's almost this improvisational quality to it Mm -hmm. yeah definitely um definitely some improv there and i you know with if it weren't for the pandemic i don't think i would have written this book you know they couldn't have written this book these are very specific to the times and i think you know 20 years when we look back at this what are we going to think? What will we remember? It seems like it, it's actually in a part of both of the books that we've talked about so far that, that uh, there's a way of recognizing the value of something that, that, that seems like, a, you know, like a completely negative thing i'm not that's not i don't know that's not like the the really the way i want to say that but this idea of of that or that even in tragedy i guess even in 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 in, uh negative experiences there's uh there's a new way of knowing sometimes that's open to us yes i i think that's a true statement um i don't know that i think of experiences as either negative or positive they just are and we make of them what we will. And I think the job as poet is one of capturing those moments of transforming them into something um, that will be representative of a time or a feeling or a person. Um, It's just the way I I like to approach poetry. That actually reminds me of of another poem in in your 
collection, and I wonder if you could, if you wouldn't mind reading it, uh, The Escape. Ah, yeah. So that's an interesting one because um, I don't know if um, you've heard about it, but locally in Riverside, there was a place, um, a, a rehab facility, which is basically, it's not really about rehab, it's more about um, seniors who need more care than they can get elsewhere. Um, when my f- father-in-law had a heart attack, a major heart attack, he, that's where he went for rehabilitation to get him you know, back to the point where he could go home. So he had been at this particular rehab called Magnolia Rehab. And then, you know, during the pandemic, early on, um, there were, people were coming down with coronavirus and didn't necessarily know. And I think there was a lot more paranoia and fear. Even, you know, there's still a lot of that now too. But to the point where many of the employees at this rehab were getting sick and they just, and the ones who weren't sick didn't want to show up for work because they were afraid of getting sick. So they had to transport all of the residents at this rehab facility all in the same day because people weren't showing up for work. So this is called the escape. And the epigraph is, 83 patients evacuated from Riverside Skilled Nursing Home after coronavirus outbreak. My father-in-law, Jay, died in our driveway. But don't worry, it was only a temporary death. And eventually, he recovered enough that he was moved to rehab. That limbo, which is neither hospital nor hostel, unlovely quarters, where nurses care 24-7 for the infirm, living stranded between this world and the next. There at Magnolia Rehab, the corridors are lined with wheeled beds, slight bodies, faces turned toward or away from the light, expressionless, panicked, or more often pained, and the entirety of the facility permeated by that sour, sweet stench of the body's unspooling. I help him into his wheelchair, mostly able, just a heart attack, mind still intact, but now cotton-gowned, a bow at the neck. And we roll down the hall onto the patio to sit among the green-songed birds beneath the peeling arbor to plot his escape, hoping toward home. But now the years are gone, and so is he, when the news breaks that for two long days at his former rehab, the staff has failed to show for work. And suddenly, I am haunted again by those living ghosts, now thick with the specter of phlegm and fever. The next morning, streets are closed, as 53 ambulances take them away. Yeah. yeah. There, there, there is a, I mean, there's, there's is that feeling of escape, right? Of, of mm-hmm. knowing that, uh, 
knowing that 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 uh, someone you love isn't, isn't experiencing what's going on right now, right? And and uh, there's a way of because my my grandmother passed away last fall, right before this all happened, mm. and and she was 94, and and when it first started, we were just thinking like, you know, it's it's always sad when a loved one passes, but at the same time, uh, how difficult this pandemic would have would have been for her there's there is that mm-hmm. feeling of of a kind of relief or, or a feeling of kind of an escape that that she she sort of escaped at the right time mm-hmm. yeah and I think those kinds of facilities um they really do feel like a limbo or a purgatory they're um there's not a lot of activity going on there's no quality of life for the patients who are there um, you know, my father-in-law was just desperate to get out of there when, when he was in there and I can understand why. So it just, it felt very tragic that these people had been largely abandoned. They couldn't fend for themselves. And, um, it was just one of those, uh, ca- casualties of the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah, I I hope I hope you have time for one more question. Sure, I'm uh, good. So this is sort of a, a kind of taking a step back, and and mm. you know my background is in rhetoric and, and composition, and uh, in rhetoric and composition, so much is about audience, about knowing your audience, and tailing your message to your audience, and on the other hand, sometimes it, it, in creative writing, uh, maybe even poetry, particularly. Uh, there sometimes is is a, a suggestion that that there is no audience, or that the audience is unimportant, or that the audience is yourself as the writer, or or you know this sort of um, uh, more inspirational kind of a, a, a view of writing. Uh, and it's not across the board at all. But I wonder what what is your approach to audience? Uh, what is your sort of take on audience when you're writing? Do you think about audience as you write? You know, I don't. Um, I think that poetry is more accessible than people realize. So I think that anybody who gives poetry a chance could find some value in it. Um, I don't think of a particular audience when I'm writing. I do, you know, often wonder what people might make of certain poems, but I wouldn't say I write for myself either. I write because it feels like the right thing to do. Um, You know, that's probably not the question you were asking, but writing is more of an involuntary act. It's it's something I have to do. Um, And I, I hope that the poetry finds its right audience. Um, and, but I do think that everybody has uh, their own tastes, and I don't expect everybody to appreciate everything. Yeah, yeah so it's, it, it's almost, in a way, it seems to me like you're describing sort of writing toward an experience or writing toward a feeling more than writing toward an audience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would say that. Um, 
or writing toward the ideal audience who might appreciate the work, but not a specific, you know, I've written a lot about mothering and parenthood, but I don't think that those poems are written for other mothers or, or people who are parents. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they're written for history. They're written as a, like a time capsule of experience. And whoever opens it, hopefully they'll find something in there that they value. Yeah, yeah. So sort of this moving of from the private to the public in a way of, of creating kind of public memory through private experiences. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. a good way to put it. Yeah. Um, well, Katie, it's it's been so wonderful to talk to you and, and to listen to your poetry. Thank you so much for, uh, for doing this. Thank you, Tom, for having me. And, uh, this is great. Thank you. How I Write is a production of California State University San Bernardino's Writing Intensive Program. Music by Kinsas Morera and Emmett Fenn. Thanks for listening.